so there's one of, one of the most intimidating um, accounts. It's not a parable that happened in the Gospels to me, and one of the most powerful and convicting is that of Jesus encountering the rich young ruler. A rich young ruler comes up to him, and he, he approaches him, and he, and he respects Jesus a lot, and he calls him rabbi, which means literally great one, but teacher in parlance. And he says, teacher, rabbi, uh, he says, good teacher, actually. What must I do to be saved? He's looking for life in God and eternal life. And he's looking for really a list of things to do. And, and Jesus says, the first thing that he says is really the key to what the rest of what he says, to his encounter with this man. He doesn't say, do this, do that first. He says, why do you call me good? Only God is good. And he's not saying, as some people think, he's not saying, I'm not good, I'm not God. He doesn't say that. But he's challenging the man's shallow understanding of what's good. And he goes on to list a few things. Um, but the fact is that one of our, this touches on this text's, one of this text's main, main fo- foci, one of its main issues. Our problem is similar in that we assign to so many other things in life that which belongs to God alone, which is, which is goodness. And that's called, there's a, there's a biblical word for that. We give it all sorts of different names, but it's called idolatry. And it completely screws our lives up. And actually, one of the things that this text will show us is that it's a, it's a problem that's deeper than the things we choose. It's, we choose these things because we're fundamentally disordered and broken. Um, and so one of my prayers is that we would be helped to believe what Jesus says here, that God alone is good, and we would align our lives with that. Um, that not only that he alone is good, but that he alone is our good. And that our pursuits would line up more with that. The other thing that I think that this encounter that Jesus has with this rich young man, this ruler, who has pretty much everything the world has to offer. He, he's a ruler, so he has power. He's also wealthy. Um, he's young. He's still got his life ahead of him. And he's seemingly on the right path. He's trying to follow God. So he's got it all. He ends up turning away, though, from God and walking away from Jesus sad. Um, and why? Jesus looks at him and he loves him, the text says. He says, he looks at him, and loving him, he says, okay, all that stuff is fine, but here's what I want you to do. Sell everything that you have, give it to the poor, and come follow me. Um, and what Jesus is touching on is the fact that this man loves more than even God. What he loves is his possessions, because he has so many of them. And the more that we have, the more that they tend to have a hold on our hearts. And that's what Jesus is, and he's saying, you can't follow God, you can't be in relationship with me and have something that has your heart more than, more than I do. So essentially what he's saying, and that, this is what this text in 1 Kings 8 gets to, uh, gets at, is that we, it's, a, it's not even so much about the things that we call good as much as, uh, in the things that we call king, as much as what do we love? What is our fundamental love? Um, and so that's what this, this text in 1 Kings 8 uh, this, this encounter Israel has with Samuel begging for a king is about. So three points this morning. Um, the, king, the king that we want, uh, point two, from Eden to Sinai to Samuel, and then finally the king that we need. So the king we want, um, talking in point two about from Eden to Sinai to Samuel, sort of how when we ask for the wrong sorts of kings, how deep of a problem that is, and then point three, the king that we need. Um, in, in short, the kings that we want are false lovers, and they, this is what this text tells us. They're false lovers. The kings that we beg for in life, and we all have them, okay? 
I'll unpack that. They're false lovers, and they will forsake us. They're cheap substitutes for the king that we need. So let's look, uh, let's look for a bit. This is the longest point, so don't despair. Um, if, you think like I'm, if you feel like I'm belaboring it, but I think it's necessary to, to unpack it. The king that we want, point one. So in verse four, we see that all of Israel, they send their representatives to, to Ramah. Okay, and this is where Samuel lives. The text tells us elsewhere. This is Samuel's house. He lives in Ramah in southern Israel. And the nation essentially shows up at his porch, at his door, and knocks on the door, and he opens the door, and it's the nation of Israel. And they're saying, hey, man, you've done a great job reigning over us, not as a king, but essentially as a judge, a prophet, and a priest figure. We've been in the period of the judges as we've settled, and now we're seeing Israel move into the period of monarchy. This is a huge transition in the biblical narrative. Israel is asking for a king. So they're saying, look, you've done a great job, but your sons are ridiculous. They're wayward. They're sinful. They pervert justice, unlike you. Here's a a side. Here's a lesson for us. You can be a godly person. Eli was this way. Samuel was this way. The coming king, David, will be this way. And a bad father. Just because you're godly doesn't mean you're tending to your children. And sometimes you can tend to your children, and, you, and, and man, they can, they can grow up wayward. And that's, that's something that only the Lord can control, and there's grace there. But that's what one of the things that we see here with Samuel. They're like, man, you, your sons are off track. We don't want them ruling us. And, uh, and so you need to appoint a king for us. So that's, that's the setting. Um, and the, we see that if we, we've skipped, so last sermon last week was the early part of 1 Samuel. And Samuel was just a baby. He had just been given in answer to prayer to Hannah, his mom. And now he's old. His, his ministry's over. So we're fast-forwarding like, I don't know, 70, 80 years, right? Um, and so a lot of text is, we've, we've missed like chapters two through, through seven. What's happened is that in the meantime, God has fought for Israel. Um, despite, them, despite Israel, despite their unfaithfulness, despite their magical view of the Ark of the Covenant, he has demolished the Philistines single-handedly, okay? And so that's what, like, we see wrapping up in chapter 7. And then, um, and then here in the next chapter, they come and say, basically, we don't want God as king. We want a king like the other nations. Um, the very thing that uh, God has just shown he's capable of, they just say, forget about that. We want, we want a king like the rest of the people around us. So the wrongness of the request is not an asking for a king. Some people look at this text and they say, you know, Israel just should have been content with no king, with having God as king. Um, The fact is, though, if you look at some of the texts before this, Deuteronomy 17, starting in verse 14 and other places, I touched on this last week, that's not necessarily a good case to make. Um, God was was glad to provide Israel, his people, with, with a godly king, but the fact is, the wrongness of their request was in act, asking for a king like the other nations. And we'll see in a second what they were really doing. What the, and God sees through that request, and he does this with us. He sees through our requests and through our pursuits for other things in life that, are good, that can be good things, and he, he pierces that fog, and he sees right to the heart of what we're really asking for. Um, so Dale Ralph Davis, a commentator, he says, their help was not now in the strong name of Yahweh, but in a new form of government. It's not monarchy, but trust in monarchy that is the villain. Say trusting in this thing instead of trusting in the living God. Um, so they, they were, they're basically refusing, God's called them to be a, out to be a people 
that is distinct and holy. That's what holy means. It means set apart and unique. My own people that I want to know and to know me and to show the world what I'm like. They're basically refusing that identity and asking for a king like the other nations. They're refusing that distinction, that distinctness. Um, And this is the nub of the issue. In their request, get this, and this is where we'll, we'll hunker down here and unpack it some for the rest of this point. They are rejecting God as their king. And God says that, right? He says that in the, in the text that we read. And I want to I wanna show you, even in, the, even in a few things that kind of come later in this chapter that we didn't read, how that's, how that's obviously the case. God says it, first of all. He says, Samuel, take heart. They're not rejecting you. They're rejecting me. Okay, but we see that in the text. In verse 7, um, it says, God says to Samuel, hey, obey the voice of the people. Give them what they're asking for. It's okay. Give them a king. Um, in verse 19, he says, uh, sorry, okay, so if you, if you cast to the end of the chapter, he says the same thing. The same line is repeated. Um, hey, Samuel, obey their voice. Give them a king. Um, right in the middle of that, so you have, hey, Samuel, obey their voice. Give them what they're asking for. Give them a king. Here and at the end of the chapter. Right in the middle, in verse 19, you have, but the people refuse the voice of Samuel. Um, you have those same uh, so they refuse to listen to the voice of Samuel. Those same verbs or words every time. So listen or hear or obey is the same Hebrew verb. And then voice um, is, is this voice, and it's later translated sound, okay, is, is the same. So that same strain, that collocation of, of words is used three times. And in the middle of it, it's that the people refuse Samuel's voice. And what are they doing? They're refusing God. So right at the heart of the chapter, the bullseye, we see through the layout of the chapter of the text is that this people in 1 Samuel 8, in asking for a king, they're rejecting God. They're rejecting God. Um, that's in the center of this text. So how do we, here's, here's the $64,000 question, how do we do this? Because it's easy to point the finger at Israel, but how do we do this? Um, you know, we want security. How, why do they want a king? To fight their battles for them. Even though God's just shown himself totally capable of doing that, um, we we hook our wagons to the lodestar of other things that we think will provide for us in ways that we don't think God can to give us security. Um, Tim Keller, I think I've told this story before, but he tells a story about a student that was a student. She was a student when he was in, I think, teaching at Westminster up in Philadelphia. It's a seminary. And she, had, she was on this, in, this business track, and she was going to get her MBA, but then either she got you know, converted and came to know the Lord, or she just, you know, realized that God was calling her to the ministry, and so she went to seminary instead and was going to forsake business school and the business track. There's nothing wrong with business, but that was what happened to her as God called her, and her mom got wind of it, apparently, and was just really upset. Like, she had this high-dollar, expensive Northeast education, and you're throwing it all away. Like, her mom used the word security. We've done all these things so that you can get a good job and have security in life, and the professor, Keller says, called he called the mom and gently, more gently than I might have, but gently I think just said, listen, you know, this, uh, we have a few years on this earth and, um, and God made us and there's a serious problem between us and God and we're, we're, we're rocketing around the sun at, at you know, thousands of miles an hour in deep space, this you know, huge ball of fire and we're spinning on an axis at over a thousand miles an hour and um, we're just a speck in the galaxy. And the whole point of life is, is to get right with God. And we're standing on a trap door. And that trap door could open at any moment. And we could be standing in front of the living God. And what, what we have to say for ourselves. And you're calling a job security. 
and hope, hopefully, I mean, he probably put her back on her heels some and, you know, you know preached the gospel to her in a winsome way. But, you know, the, the point is, like, if, if that's the end game for you, then, man, you are so off course. And that's what we tend to do, truth be told, a lot of times is we just look to a job or a person for validation um, or a resume or just that next thing in life. And we're not taking the big picture. We're not looking at the long game. We're not looking at why am I here? Who am I? Is there a problem between me and God? What's the answer? Um, and it's, it's the if only syndrome. You know, if only I could get that job, that next job. It's always the thing in front of us, right? If only, because that, that satisfaction, that deep and abiding satisfaction uh, is, is, it's always just right out of our reach, right? And so we, we're, we're, we're bent in such a way that we we're convince ourselves that it's that next thing. If I can just get that next thing, it's just, the peak is just over that hill. Well, it never is, right? If I could just get that next job, that promotion, that person to like me, to marry me, um, that degree, that house, if my spouse would just be this way. Um, look to Israel and look to this text next time you're tempted to believe that lie and look how it turns out for them. Lots of things are good, but no, nothing but God will satisfy us and is made to secure us. Um, you know, think back to Jesus. Why do you call me, why do you call me good? Um, and these things, they look really impressive. What kind of king, what king does God give Israel? He gives them what they ask for. He gives them a really impressive, ostensibly, outwardly, super, and he starts off humble, seemingly. Saul, King Saul. Head taller than everybody else. He's in the chapters to come, the next chapter. Head taller than everybody else. He's a warrior. He fights like a madman. He looks great. And all these things that we're listing off that are our little kings that we want, they're the same way. They seem like they're going to satisfy. They seem like they're going to secure. Otherwise, we wouldn't bite the hook. Um, but we do. And you know, Jesus, and we'll get to him, the king that we need, he's the opposite, right? He doesn't oftentimes seem appealing. He comes in humble garb. But he's the opposite. He actually, he shows us what's gonna cost to follow him and then he over delivers. He under promises and he over delivers every time. He is the one, the only one that will satisfy us. You know, just a couple examples from, for me, like why do I get anxious before I preach? Usually, almost all of it can be attached to my making a king out of other people's opinion. Um, and if I didn't do that, if I was looking to God alone to secure me in my identity, uh, the anxiety would disappear. And to the degree that I do that, it does. Um, my marriage, um, dissatisfaction in my marriage. What, pastor, you have dissatisfaction sometimes in your marriage? No, I'm just kidding, it's hypothetical. Our marriage is perfect. Ha <laughs> <laughs> yes, of course. We got tons of stuff to work on. Dissatisfaction in my marriage, um, it's a me problem. Why? Because I'm looking to my wife to, for things that only God is supposed to give me. Satisfaction. Marriage isn't so that your spouse can satisfy you. That's not, that's not the point of marriage. As long as we're looking at that, we're gonna be disappointing ourselves and putting a weight on them that's too hard to bear and they're gonna sense that and there's just gonna be friction. It's a me problem. Broken cisterns, um, in the words of, of Jeremiah 2.13. For my people have committed two evils. They've forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and they've hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. Leaky cups, that's all these kings that we beg for are, okay? Um, and that's actually a word that God uses here, forsake. Same word in Jeremiah 2, my people have forsaken me. It's here in verse eight. Um, my people, you know, they've, they've forsaken me ever since Sinai. Ever since I brought them up, God says, hey, Samuel, they're not rejecting you, they're rejecting me. Why? Because it's the way that they've always been. Even when I brought them out of Egypt, ever since that day when I brought them out of slavery and put them in a good land, they've forsaken me. Okay? 
It's a deep, deep problem. And let's not point the finger, okay? It's in us too. Um, so it's personal to God. When we go after these other things, when we look to our marriage or to the idea of being married or to that person or to that job, it's personal. God looks at it. How does he look at it? As being forsaken. That's love language. You forsake a spouse. It's personal. It affects God deeply. Why? Because he made us to be in love relationship with him. That's the whole raison d'etre. That's the whole point of life. Okay? That's the whole point of life, which is why nothing else satisfies. Because we're made for gas in the car, and everything else is putting milk in the car. And it just doesn't run right. Okay? Um, but thank God, Deuteronomy 4.24, the Lord your God is a jealous God. He's a consuming fire. What does fire do? It burns up everything that's not pure and perfect. So God loves us too much to to allow us to keep our idols around us. When he calls us to himself, he, over the course of our lives, is gracious to apply pressure to us to burn up this fire, to burn up these competing idols. And it hurts, but it's good. Um, so worry over my bank account, it's personal. Uh, now, I'm not saying don't be circumspect and careful. I'm not saying that, don't get me wrong. But when I worry about that kind of stuff, when I, when I look to um, my spouse to fulfill me instead of looking to God, it's personal to God. Um, when I think that I can't be happy without a spouse, it's personal to God. Um, and it's a lie. It's a lie. Believing that anything can satisfy but Jesus is a lie. So what will this king do? This is the text that you didn't, that, we, that was not read to you by Austin. Um, but in verses 10 through 18, Samuel says, God says this. Here's the thing. God's always honest. He's like, give them what they ask for, but tell them what it's going to cost them. Tell them what the king is going to do. And that's 10 through 18. That's the torso of the, of the chapter. And um, first of all, three things, essentially, okay? He's gonna fight your battles for you. He's gonna start by, and all you have to do is look to, the, look to Saul, the, the first king of Israel, and then even to David, to Solomon, uh, but especially Saul really embodies this, and Solomon does as well. He's gonna fight our battles for us. He's gonna start by securing us and satisfying us. And that's what our idols do. They start off well, otherwise we wouldn't chomp on them, right? Um, that first date, man, this is the person, and maybe it is the person, but like, you know, you don't see anything but the shiny goodness, you know, like, that's it. All the, all the brokenness, it's, they're not, you're not going to bring that up your first date. Like, if you get married, you can see all that stuff, you know, both ways. Um, so they fart, they, excuse me, wow, that's the first time I have ever said that, and hopefully the last. Man, you can't get around that, you just can't. Hello, hello. They start, wow, could be worse, I guess. Um, they start by securing and satisfying us. Secondly, they, they move into a place where they're impoverishing us. They're taking the best of what, of what is ours for themselves. And that's what this king does. If you read this text, he's gonna take your sons, your daughters, he's gonna take a tithe, he's gonna take a tenth of your crops, everything. He's gonna make you fight for him. So the, word t- the verb take appears four times in this short text. Verse 11, 13, 14, and 16. Take, take. He's going to take, 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 take. And that's what our idols do. That's what our kings that we clamor for do. And then finally, thirdly, they enslave us. They enslave us and our children. That's essentially where Samuel ends. God says, tell them. Tell them ahead of time what it's going to cost them. Um, and what, it, what happens the next verse? What's the people's response? Man, thanks so much for telling us. We're going to reconsider. No. <laughs> On the contrary, they say, they say, 
No, but give us a king. Yeah, 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 we got all that. Okay, fine, I got it. Uh, they're gonna provide for us, then they're gonna uh, impoverish us, and they're gonna enslave us. Yes, king, please. That's exactly what they do. And that's what we do. I mean, before we're too hard on Israel, it's what we do. We run to these false lovers. And I, you know, when I read this response from Israel, sometimes in ancient texts, whether it's the Bible or Augustine or someone, someone that's just written a long time ago, you know that you feel separated by distance, but sometimes they'll say something, whether it's conveying a thought or something like this, and it'll just bring you, you'll realize you're right up, you're right up across the table from the, these people. They're real, and they're just like you. And this was one of those moments for me. No, but give us a king. It's what we want. You know, we know you've told us all the liabilities, but that's what we want. We're not even listening. We've already, here's the thing, we've already made up our mind. You ever done that? I've already made up my mind even before you started talking, God, I'm going in. Man, I felt so close to them when I read that. Um, so Dale Ralph Davis, same commentary. He says, one day I caught him. He's talking about his son. <laughs> one day I caught him exiting the bathroom, hands deliciously wet, shaking his head from side to side. He'd been in the toilet saying to himself, no, no, his little son. You know, so he, he knew he, had not, he was not supposed to be in the toilet and he was just playing in the toilet and he was just walking out, just no, no, you know. Um, another, another story closer to home, my sister was at a friend's house years ago and she saw a little boy, excuse me, um, her friends told her this, her good friends, they, it was dinner time and maybe they were at the table, but either way, their son was not, he was a little crawly guy and he, uh, they had a dog with a dish of food in the corner of the kitchen and he knew he was not supposed to, you know, you get a slap, get a spank, you're not supposed to go, and he looked at him and they were over here and he was over there. And he looked at him, and he looked back at the food, and he looked at him again, and he looked back at the food, and he picked, he dug his hand in the dish, and as he was putting it to his mouth, he was just, <laughs> just crying as he chomped, you know? This is such a great picture of what we do. Uh, it's essentially an exposition of Romans 1, where Paul uh, says, he lists all, our, not only what we do, starting in verse 18 of Romans 1, through the end of the chapter, but really the condition that we were born into and that we're slaves to, which is, um, here's the phrase that, it's the, it's the motif, again, that runs throughout this chapter. We suppress, they suppressed the truth in unrighteousness. So they know, we know what we're doing. And the word there is the same word that's used in the Greek for someone pushing someone under the water uh, to drown them. We, they push it down. It's just a simple verb for push down. We push down the truth, we know what it is, and we really just don't want to hear about it anymore. Give us the king. Um, Dale Ralph Davis, they knew what was forbidden, but that did not change their action. There's a difference between having the truth and loving the truth. Only the latter leads to obeying the truth. And again, I bring it up all the time, but it's because it's so pertinent. The, the Scottish pastor, Thomas Chalmers, uh, his, the title of his sermon, great sermon, go read it. The expulsive power of a new affection. The no, the no of religion is ultimately never going to be enough to keep us from doing the things we ought not to do and from following God. That's not the point. It's the yes. It's the greater affection of yes, this is what I'm made for. I am made for the living God and to be satisfied and secured in him alone. And then guess what? Everything else does find its place. The things that God made are good. They have their place, but we want to make them supreme. There's an expulsive power and a new affection. Um. You know, God sort of side point and then, and then on to point two. Um, and by the way, this is why the, the 
zeitgeist. Um, I don't think that it's fading away. It still seems fairly prominent in this world. The line, follow your heart, just do what's right to you, is terrible advice because our hearts are desperately wicked and we're constantly suppressing the truth. And what we ask for when God gives it to us will end up destroying us, okay? Um, so God giving us what we ask for, as in this chapter, he gives them Saul and then Saul ends up basically impoverishing and enslaving them is not necessarily a blessing from God. Um, and so God's granting us our, the, the, the object of our heart, our heart's desire, is not necessarily a sign of his favor, but of our obstinacy. And it can actually be judgment. In Romans 1, what's the thing? There's another phrase that repeat, appears over and over again in Romans chapter 1. And is that because they were suppressing the truth and unrighteousness constantly, what did God do? What was his judgment? He gave them over to their desires. Wow. That's the last thing that we want for God to do with us. Um, reminds me of that Garth Brooks song, Sometime, I'll spare you since I've already said a bad word up here, a, pot, a potty word. Uh, singing it, but sometimes I thank God for unanswered prayers. Bubba has the right shirt on. He could come up here and sing it this morning, but um, it's a uh, sometimes, you, don't, you guys don't even know who Garth Brooks is probably, but um, sometimes I thank God for unanswered prayers. Actually, a pretty good song. Okay, so, so downshifting a bit, looking a bit more at why do we do this, and it's here embedded in the text. Point two, from, Sin, from Eden, excuse me, from Eden, the Garden of Eden, to Sinai, to Samuel, and actually to Saul, to Solomon. Okay, and this is a much briefer point. Um, verse eight, according to all the deeds that they have done from the day I brought them up out of Egypt, even to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so also they are doing to you. This is what God says to Samuel. But this rejection, I wanna contend here for a minute, it doesn't just reach back as God is saying to Sinai. It actually goes back all the way, almost all the way, okay, all the way to the Garden of Eden. And that's actually woven throughout the substrata of, uh, of this text. Um, so it reached this problem that where we clamor for a king, even when we know that this king isn't going to be the best thing for us, it goes back not just to Sinai, but to, to creation um, and to the fall, okay, to our first parents. So let me just briefly explain that. Um, back to listen to and voice or sound. So listen to or hear, it's the same word, or obey. That word shema in the Hebrew, it means all those things. Listen to, hear, obey. Um, and then the voice or the sound of, okay, it's the word kol in the Hebrew. Um, the first time we see, so you see that in this text, right? Three or four times, listen to the voice of, listen to their voice. Um, they aren't listening. They're not going to listen to my voice. They've rejected me, okay? The first time we see that, okay, the, use, the word scholars use is collocation, that string of, that collection of words together. Um, in the scriptures, in the Bible, is Genesis 3.8. It's the first time that word appears. And what, what the author of this chapter is doing is he's, he's shooting us and using that same phrase a lot of times in this chapter. He's shooting us back to say, what does the Bible say about this beforehand? First time it's used is Genesis 3.8. Where is that? It's verse 6. Genesis 3.6, what happens? Everything changes. Adam and Eve, Ad, Eve takes the fruit and she, she eats it and she gives it to her husband who's been silent the whole time who said nothing to defend her, to stand up for God's word, to say, this is what we're doing, and he eats too, complicit. And everything changes for us. Two verses later, it says, they heard the, vo the sound, rather, same word, of God. They heard, Shema, the sound of God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And what do they do? Instead of coming to meet with him as they were made to do, and to fellowship with him, and to talk, and to walk, and to be, and to be loved, and to love him, 
and to cultivate and to create and to build, they hide. From each other, they cover themselves and they hide behind a bush from God and they're afraid of him now. He's a threat. Everything has changed because they've rebelled against God. They just saw in the branch that they're sitting on off and they're just gonna die. It's a matter of time. That's the first time that appears. The next time it appears is in the same chapter when God is enunciating the curses that are gonna come about, the, the consequences of our sin. In Genesis 3.17, next time this collocation occurs, it says, because, Adam, you have listened to the voice of your wife, cursed will be the ground because of you, and thorns and thistles you will cultivate all the days of your life by the sweat of your brow, and you will die. The earth will swallow you up. The earth that gave you birth will swallow you, okay? Um, the next time this occurs is in the next chapter, Genesis 4. And Genesis 4 is basically, the, there's one point in Genesis 4. It's the next chapter after the fall. And Genesis 4 is basically saying death is reigning. Everyone's dying and people are so full, they're riven by sin. It's taking over everything. And the, the sort of the culmination point of this effect is a guy named Lamech. And he comes, Cain is just in the previous chapter, in this chapter, in chapter 4 of Genesis, killed his brother, uh, kind of tried to hide it. Lamech takes it to the next level, just a few verses later. He sings a song about having just killed a boy for, like, making fun of him. He's, he sings a song to his two wives that he now has, and he's, he's, he's boasting in the fact that he's just murdered a child, okay? And, it, and he says, listen to my voice, wives of Lamech, and he makes up a ditty about killing, murdering a, a child. So this is the next time this appears. So it's showing us, it's tying, what is it doing? It's these, this collocation is tying us into not hey, it's a behavior problem, the fact that we're constantly choosing false kings. It's deep. It goes all the way back to the fall and, and, and putting Band-Aids on it and trying to scour it and clean it up ourselves and change our behavior is not gonna work. That's the subtext of this chapter, okay? Um, here's, the, here's the thing. Here's what we're learning. The people want a king who will take them back to the garden, okay, back to Eden. That's what we want. When we're, when we're pursuing all these other things in our lives, what we're doing is, even if we don't believe in an Eden and believe that God made a man and a woman and put him in a perfect place and believe in a fall, there's something in us that we're constantly, even if we don't know it, looking to get back to a place that we feel in our bones we were made for. There's something wrong with the universe, and we want something desperately to set it right, and we're just looking for the next king to do it. And this text is telling us the problem starts way back and the solution is going to have to take care of all of those, those fundamental issues, that sin problem, the curse itself, okay? Saul didn't take care of it. Saul didn't take us back to Eden, didn't take Israel back to Eden. Da even David, the king that comes from Saul, that will be a partial fulfillment of, of uh, God's promise to restore all things, even he won't take Israel back to Eden. He's a murderer. He's an adulterer. But he'll get us closer. He'll get Israel closer. Um, a man will come from him uh, that will. There's a promise of that in 2 Samuel chapter 7. Uh, it won't be Solomon. So some, some people look at that text and think, oh, that was Solomon, the, the, one prom the, the king that's going to come from David to restore all things. It's Solomon. Um, but actually we know that you know, Solomon was just a type of the one to come, and he wasn't the one. If you read 1 Samuel 18, all, all the things that are done, he'll, he'll amass horses and chariots for himself. He'll enrich himself. He'll put, he'll put to labor all of your sons and daughters, he'll make them bakers and cooks and laborers. Like, that's all the things that, Samuel, that Solomon does. So Sol Sam Solomon's not the one. Um, we know that our idolatry runs super, super deep. Um, 
can a leopard change his spots? We need new hearts because if we, the hearts, the hearts that we have will clamor for things that will eventually destroy us. I was a kid, we had a ranch, and my mom found me. She couldn't find me, you know, it's always a little, if it's a little quiet and you have a little boy and it's been too long and you haven't seen him in a while, like trouble, you know? And she runs, sure enough, she runs into the, the um, dining room and I'm sitting in a, in, a, in a bunch of pink powder that's rat poison and I'm just playing in it. And fortunately, I didn't eat any. Um, but that's what we do. We, we go after things that will destroy us. That's our condition. So we need a king that we're not ever going to ask for. We're searching for, some, for a king to take us back to Eden, not only to repair us to that place, but to repair us. Because if we're honest with ourselves, we know in our honest moments that it's not our environments that are the problem. It's we. We who are the problem. So finally, the king that we need. Um, first off, when we look at God and his response here to Samuel and to the people, we see that what we need and who God is, he's a humble king. He's a humble king. Um, look at the way that he, so how does Samuel react to the people's clamoring for a king? Not your sons, they're wayward, we don't want them. Give us a king like all the nations. How does Samuel react? Sure thing. No, no, it says he's deeply wounded basically. We can kind of d- divine some of the things about Samuel's personality maybe from this, but he takes it personally as a personal rejection. And what does God do? And he's up, really upset about this that the people have asked for a king. Am I not enough for you? My son's not enough for you? That kind of thing. But what does God, what does God do? He comforts Samuel. They're there. They're there. It's okay. Don't worry. Be comforted. They're not rejecting you. They're rejecting me. What, in, in knowing that the, his own people, that he, he called out from death into life, that he rescued out of slavery and put in a promised land, that he's going to bless the whole world through, that he made for himself, that he's gone to such ultimate lengths to rescue and begin restoring, they reject him just like they've been doing since Sinai and before. And what is his response? Not self-pity, no, no trace of that. He's comforting Samuel. Don't worry. Don't take it personally. It's about me. What, where else do we see this? What kind of God does this? Well, apparently the one true God, and we see it on the cross. The divine love that's thinking of others in a moment of personal pain when he knows he's been personally rejected. Where is this better broadcast and highlighted and spotlighted than on the cross? When Jesus is sitting there, splayed out for all the world to see, naked, slashed up, beaten up, bruised up, becoming sin for us, praying for us. Not a, not a scintilla, not an ounce of self-pity. We, we, we get to hear God suffering to death for six hours. Never will you hear self-pity. I would have been all about me, not, not Jesus. What does he say? He's thinking about others, just like here in 1 Samuel 8. He's saying to John, take care of mom. She's, she's now yours, okay? And he's saying for all of us, Father, forgive them. When he's carrying the cross and he can't even take it anymore on the way to the hill and he stumbles and he falls and, and uh, the, the women are grieving, he, he turns to them and he says, hey, don't grieve for me. Grieve for yourselves because bad things are coming. He's always thinking about other people. What's the point? The point is this is the way God is. He's, he's thinking about us even as we reject him. And this is the same God the one who shows up and hangs on a cross for us, it's the same God comforting Samuel. It's the only God. It's the God of the Old Testament. Come to be with us. That's why we're here celebrating Advent. 
this beautiful God, the king that we need. Um, it also shows us and just reminds us of the divine humility that C.S. Lewis talks about, where we, he receives us. Okay, so what does he do through the people's rejection of him? He gives him a king. Eventually, it's David after Saul. And from David comes Messiah, Jesus. He gives them, through his rejection, their salvation. And what does he do? That's what, what but the cross is the, and the cross is the best illustration of this. Through our rejection of him, boom, 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 boom. No, no, we don't want you as a king. Literally, we don't want this man to reign over us, Luke 19. The same thing Israel says uh, in 1 Samuel 8, they say in Luke 19, and we say it too. He uses our rejection of him to save us, to provide a portal to become the sacrifice. To, he, as a sacrifice, takes the punishment we deserve and becomes a portal to life for us, rises from the dead, proving that his payment was sufficient in the eyes of the Father for us to be wiped clean, to be acceptable, to be made righteous, to be brought back into the family, to get new hearts, to be restored, to be set on the right track, to be objects of God's delight again. That kind of humility, he receives us when we realize, he, you're, our, you're my last option. What kind of lover is that humble but God? He's so humble. Um, John Stott says this. He says, the S, he's a British 20th century, huge 20th century British preacher. He says, the essence of sin is we human beings substituting ourselves for God, while the essence of salvation is God substituting himself for us. We put ourselves where only God deserves to be in charge of our lives, while God puts himself where we deserve to be, that is, being punished on the cross. Um, J.D. Greer, he's a pastor in North Carolina, he says, he says, just as Israel rejected God here, so they rejected him again in Jesus' day, like I've just said. Um, but as here in 1 Samuel 8, so in Jesus but on a much grander, costlier, more complete way. Um, he writes this. He says, Jesus, God in the flesh, was the king uh, the people of Israel were seeking, even though they didn't know it, okay? He alone could satisfy and save. Every king says, get this, stay with me, and then we're gonna finish. Every king says this, please me, obey me, and I will guarantee your happiness. So all of our kings say that to us in one way or another. Please me, obey me, and I will guarantee your happiness. Money says, uh, find me and you'll be happy. Marriage says, find me and you'll be happy. Family, worldly success, fame, independence, they all make these claims, all of them, every single one. But every king also says, if you disappoint me, here's the flip side, I will make you miserable. Money says that, if you fail to get me and you become poor, you're gonna be miserable. Marriage says, if you fail to get me and you grow old single, life will be terrible. And as Tim Keller says, Jesus is the only Lord who if you receive him, will fulfill you completely, and if you fail him, will forgive you eternally. Um, see how personal, Keller says, Christianity is. For its deepest secret of wisdom comes not through massive learning or education, a secret gnosis, right, that we need to attain to, but through an intimate relationship with a humble man, the king who came to take our place, to be a substitution for us in all the worst ways, and to bring us to where he is, to bring us to his heart. Um, J.D. Greer, he says, note some of the parallel. We're not going to get to Saul next Sunday at 5 p.m., so don't come here at 10.15. Next Sunday at 5 p.m. and bring a friend or two. Um, we're going to be looking at David in, in 1 Samuel 16. We're going to skip Saul. Well, you know, that's not because he's not important. He is. But um, I just want to mention a few things, therefore, as we cast forward a little bit to, to look at, 
a comparison between that king that they ask for and get and the king that we need, Jesus. When Saul was anointed king, he's still with the Spirit. Okay, uh, 1 Samuel 10. When Jesus is baptized, he's anointed by the Holy Spirit, which descends from heaven as a dove. Saul starts well. Okay, Jesus starts well. But the comparisons pretty much end right there. The contrasts are more numerous. Saul started well, but Jesus ended well. Faithful unto death. Saul thought of his own interests, but Jesus, those of others primarily. Um, Saul made Israel his servants, but Jesus said the Son of Man didn't come to be served, but to serve and to what? Give his life as a ransom for many. He served us even in his death and especially in his death. And he continues to be that way. He didn't stop serving us just, just on the earth. He, he's a king who serves. He's a king who gives. And he makes us that kind of people. Saul's sinful, selfish choices would cause many in Israel to die. Jesus' loving choices would cause many in Israel to live through his death for us. And finally, Saul was harsh and unforgiving with those who disappointed him. When Jesus' subjects disappointed and rebelled against him, and how often do we do this? He laid his life down for them. You know, when he came into the room as a resurrected Christ and passed through the wall with a new body, and, and, and he's, conquered, he's conquered death in the grave, and they all, what? They've scattered. All of his closest friends scattered when he was hung on that cross. Instead of coming into the room and squashing them between his toes like orange marmalade, what does he say to them? What's the first word out of his mouth? Peace. Peace. Brothers. We're family now. I was that bridge between God and man. I was crucified, and you can now walk straight over me to God. Okay? Um, he was forsaken by God, um, but he promised at the end of Matthew, for instance, of the Great Commission, what? I will never leave you or forsake you. And because he was forsaken, we never will be, right? Um, yeah, y'all, he, he, he came weak to be a substitute for us. If he'd come strong, we never would have been able to crucify him. You know, we never would have come if Jesus had come as he truly is, the God of the universe. You can't crucify God of the universe, nor would you want to. He came undercover so that we would reject him, you know? Not compelled, but because of our own sin, we would reject him. He came in weakness and provided a portal portal for all salvation. But when he comes again, the coming king is going to come in power. He's going to call his own to him, and he's going to vanquish the enemy. And as Ray said at the beginning when he lit the candles, he's going to make, he's going to, he's started the process of making things new through us. He's going to finish that process. And he's the man, the God-man, Jesus, the Jewish man. He's going to reign bodily forever, bring heaven down and reign as our king, the king who gives, the king who loves, the king who is, is for us and, and, is, and has made us for him. Um, and the more that this penny drops of the fact that he, the king that we need is actually the king that we want, if only we knew what we wanted. And the more that we, that drops, the more we will forsake the lesser things and they will find their proper place as we seek him and know that, you know what, life or death, if I live or if I die, it's all gain because I have Christ. I have all that I need. He's my heart's desire, the expulsive power of a new affection. As that penny drops, his kingdom will go forth through us as we spend our money differently, as we look at relationships differently. I don't need you to love me or to like me, to prove of me. I can just pour myself out to you because guess what? I've been filled up. And so on and so forth. His kingdom will grow and it will speed his return. And then he will come and make all things new. He's the, he's the king that we would want if only we knew what we wanted. And he's most certainly the king that we need. Let's Father, 
your love for us expressed in the fact that you gave us your son and more crushed him for us is extraordinary. It's wonderful. It's beyond our comprehension, but I pray that you would help us to apprehend it head and heart today, maybe for the first time. But if we have, Lord, that that penny would drop more, would sink more so that we would stop spinning our wheels, spending ourselves on things that can't satisfy and secure and, and worship you, the God who deserves all glory and praise in our lives. So we bless you. We thank you for Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen.